0: For yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find me during the week, movie reviews, interviews, in a multitude of print and online publications around the globe. But every Monday you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, as I've been touting the past few days... um, We're going to go and dig deep today with two very wonderful guests. Uh, We're going to have uh, shortly a pre-recorded interview with the star of Dig Two Graves, Samantha Eisler. Many of you may recognize and know of Samantha from her subsequent work after Dig Two Graves on the much lauded and uh, award-nominated Captain Fantastic. And during my interview with Samantha on Friday night, we talked about Captain Fantastic and Dig Two Graves and where her career is going from here. When she made uh, <clears throat> when she made Dig Two Graves, she had just turned 14. She's now 17. And that is why she is not with us live this morning, because she is in school. So we do not miss education to be on the radio show. So she interrupted a basketball game date with her boyfriend Friday night to do a pre-record interview, and you're going to hear that shortly. But before then... It's been it's been uh, I've been going around the globe uh, with interviews this week, talking to Italian filmmakers. Uh, one in particular, uh, Gabrielle Minetti, who has a new film here in the United States called They Call Us Jig. Uh It is out in limited release now. Anybody that if it is near you here in Southern California in Los Angeles area, it's the Lemley NoHo. See it. It is a wonderful film. It is Gabrielle's first feature. Uh, he has done many shorts and other wor- and commercial work over in Italy, but this is his first feature, and he blends genres of anime, a love story, uh, action, 1970s gritty action of you know the getaway or bullet, uh, plus Italian crime. It's shot on a multitude of locations uh, all around Rome and its suburbs. So it's a beautiful travelogue on top of being a fun film. Uh, they call us Jig. It is in theaters. It will be on VOD and DVD uh, coming up in the coming months. So if it's near you, see it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, Gabriel is an incredible director, and uh, he is actually one of the nicest people I have ever had the opportunity to interview. But also, I spoke with another Italian this week, <laughs> Walter uh, Auzzolino. Walter is a former, a very successful Italian TV executive. He walked away from all that a couple of years ago to start a streaming service. Now, there are plenty of streaming services out there, as we all know. We've got Hulu, we've got Netflix, Amazon. But this one, it's called Walter Presents, and what Walter has done is he has traveled the globe to find and cultivate the best dramatic series that are out there in Europe, and Scandinavia, in South America, and he has put them all together, made them available on through WalterPresents.com uh, so you can binge watch to your heart's content. They are all commercial-free. Nothing comes up as just one episode at a time when a show is added to the programming lineup for Walter Presents. You get the entire season. The entire show is there at your disposal. Um, one of the premiere shows that he has, it's called Valkyrian out of Norway. And it stars uh, one of Norway's hottest actors, uh, Paul Severhagen. Um, it is it, And that one has not been shown anywhere before. It's not like he went uh, in his 3,400 hours of watching programming to cultivate Walter Presents. Valkyrian was not even made. He read a script and believed in it so much. So this is fresh and new to Walter Presents. I had a chance to sit down with Walter in, of all places, the very storied Culver Hotel last week, um, a legend in Italian television and film it's only fitting that he sits in the Culver Hotel which is filled with the legends of ghosts of days gone by and let me just let you hear a little bit of my interview with Walter uh, I use Alino, talking about Walter presents the process and what what qualifies for programming to make the cut
1: I think, and at this time as well, I think the timing could not be more perfect. Actually, I, you know, honestly, it, it couldn't be more perfect. But also the true, the, the same is true of the UK, in a way, because I think that Anglo-American and in general Western democracies are undergoing a very weird wave of cultural conservatism, which is kind of going... So every, everybody seems to be doing that, and I think this is, in a fine sort of way, the perfect time yeah. to say, forget all that great stories don't know any boundaries and they come straight over the top into your living room and they allow for the conversation to continue for us to keep our eyes open into other cultures other ideas other stories i know human beings always tell the same stories anyway sort of death revenge Do uh, right. you know what i mean um, doomsday yeah. they are the big themes, but i think it's so important that we keep our eyes open on how different countries tell the those stories because they just enrich our lives in general and I think with Valkyrian it's one of the in fact it's the first show up to then I had acquired Quite a few hundreds. I'd watched thousands, but I'd quite, quite a few hundreds of hours. But this is the first one where we got it off script. So mm-hmm. I, I still remember. I was in South Kensington, in a lovely place called the Ciné Lumière, where one of the. In fact, I always thought it was coming, It was South Ken, where the distributor of the show said to me, "I got a show, but I can't show it to you because it just started to make it." So I got like a two-minute segment, which will show you how beautiful it is, and then I got the scripts, and I went like, "Okay." And he goes, "I'll show you this two-minute segment." So we're in a bar, much more noise than here, actually, and it's a mini-screen, and it that scene where you and the cop in episode one talk and and in,
0: in, in the when the, the cop yeah when
1: the cop kind of goes have you said anything you can go what, what do you think I would ever betray you and it was a brilliant scene because nothing happens in it it's just two dudes talking effectively that face that face, that face is amazing but that fa- but, but, but I think that that's that that's the key to his character and that's the key driver in the strength of the series which is it's a character who's slightly sinister and endearing at the same time so you're scared of him but you like him and you don't and you keep watching because you're trying to figure out how you feel about it and so I got the scripts I got home and I read them in about three and a half hours I romped through the scripts where you just we like the best novels you couldn't stop reading them they were amazing and so I thought like if this turns out sort of 60% as good as the scripts it's going to be amazing so we bought it off script and it was actually better than the scripts when it delivered so uh, I'm very very proud of it it's their work
0: you know, I ran. I up on you know what you went through to create, sure. you know, this beautiful Walter Present series.
1: Thirty-four hundred hours. Yeah, even and now it's more actually. It's more. Yeah, it started about three years ago. How
0: do? You, what is your criteria? How do you pick? Obviously, you made a brilliant choice.
1: Well, <laughs> I got good taste. <laughs> oh, <obviously. laughs> no, okay. I'm kidding. You know what? No, it's much simpler than that. The, the criteria There's are simple. So much crap out yeah, there. a lot. And we pick, and I, I sort of figured out that we pick about one in about 20 shows that we watch. So it's it's less, it's 5%, effectively, it's, that is good. And the rest is terrible. But the same would be true of American mainstream telly, if you think about it. If you look at, you know, your, what you have here is AMC, Showtime, HBO, all those wonderful premium Light. channels that deliver outstanding drama. Mm-hmm. And and then you got a lot of uh, uh, sort of network stuff which right. I, I don't want to, but, but, but you know it's the same it's the same in every country yeah. the network super broad thing sort of family oriented stuff tends to be blander it's yeah. not I don't want to stack them off but that's what they do whereas premium services they service a very specific audience that loves crisp great beautiful storytelling and so that was our inspiration and the criteria were very simple there were three so, A, I never wanted this to be elitist or out house or sort of locked in its own world of self-importance and snobbery because I wanted it to be very much AMC and Showtime and HBO. I wanted it to be broad, shiny, mainstream and sexy. And obviously, premium for a discerning audience. This is not for seven-year-old children having supper. It really isn't. Uh, it's post-Watershed in many, many ways. <laughs> However, the criteria were. The shows needed to be huge hits in their country of origin. So I wanted to look at why is it that Valkyrian has rated to the point where 50% of the, the audience has watched it. So one in two television viewers in Norway have watched and loved Valkyrian. Are they all mad or is there something in it? So that was the first thing. Big hits, right? Second, uh, uh, the quality of the writing, acting, and directing. It needed to be impeccable. And the for us, the examples were really HBO and Showtime and AMC. So it needed to sit alongside. I saw it very much, even in the UK, as a service that would be complementary to the big, iconic uh, scripted cable. So if something could not sit alongside Mad Men or Better Call Saul or uh, Homeland, quality-wise, then it didn't merit inclusion. And then thirdly, there was the notion of uh, award winners. And, you know, I wanted pieces that over time, and, you know, um, Vikirin has just been released, but uh, we bought Deutschland 83 as our launch piece last year, mm-hmm. and that got an Emmy uh, only a few months ago. So it's pieces that get recognized by the international community as being more than just hit shows. They are hit, beautiful shows. Mm-hmm. Either the writing or the photography or the acting elevates them beyond the average and the So the criteria was quite simple. And we needed two of those three boxes to be ticked, and then they would be seriously considered. But it was good fun. It was a crazy year and a half of watching, 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 watching.
0: And trust me when I tell you, you will appreciate all the watching that Walter has done because right now I think he's up over 40 uh, 40 different shows from 15 different countries. Uh, Some of the shows, uh, in addition to Valkyrian, there's Spin from France, there's Black Widow uh, from... The Dutch show, Deutschland 83 from Germany. And this streaming, WalterPresents.com, it just launched here in the United States on the 16th of March. I can't... uh, $6.99 a month. I got to tell you, I do not subscribe to screening services. And when I'm watching... Last year, I watched 1,142 feature films. I don't have time to subscribe to screening services. I... I'm in love with Walter presents and I have forked over my money for a whole year in advance. <laughs> I'm that excited about the programming. So if you want some really great entertainment from that's going on around the world, WalterPresents.com. Trust me, you will not regret it. So, and now let's move on to the wonderful Samantha Eisler. As I mentioned at the top of the show, most of you may know her from Captain Fantastic, but before Captain Fantastic, at age 13, or just turning 14, even, she's not sure, but it was really her first big film, and it's a starring role. She plays opposite Ted Levine. You all know Ted Levine. Most will remember him from Silence of the Lam- Lambs. Um, he plays her grandfather. She plays a young girl named Jake, set in the 70s in southern Illinois, in a very wilderness hick kind of backwoods area. And there's a melding of generations, incidents that happened with her grandfather years ago that tie into the death of her brother in present day. There's a bit of a supernatural flair to it, but it's beautifully shot. The performances, you would never believe that this was only one of her first roles. So, in its entirety, here's my interview with Samantha Samantha Eisler. I mean, it's ta- yes. it's taken long enough for this movie to come out. It's like they were waiting for Cap- for Captain Fantastic and for everyone to fall <laughs> in love with you. Maybe, maybe you know, it has been a while for sure. Because and you were great in Captain Fantastic, but now seeing this one, wow! What you uh, what, thank you. I can't believe what you brought to the table. To play the role of Jake. Oh, thank you. You are absolutely riveting, and the relationship and chemistry that you and Ted have on screen is absolutely amazing. Every granddaughter and Mm -hmm. grandfather out there would will fall in love watching the two of you.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: You know because you you made this film back in what 2014 when you were 13
2: yes I was I think I had just turned 14 actually so yeah, you know yes yeah, it was a while ago so
0: what do you do when you get a script like this that has the character you're auditioning for you know chopping up a deer firing guns you pl- stomping on <laughs> snakes
2: you. Know, this is, right. this is not the normal stuff for a 14 year old right you know I was just really I was really attracted to the script because it was such a cool and different story you know the plot's amazing um, it was set in the 70s so I thought that was really cool the characters were all super kind of quirky and unique and different but the character of Jake was just such an independent and strong willed young woman um, and I loved getting to play her and getting to play her while she's conflicted with all these hard decisions she has to make but she also has this aspect of innocence because of how young she is so i was just yeah it was, it was really easy to fall in love with her and in the story
0: well and i'm glad you mentioned the independence which and the fact that this is set in the 70s is very key to see such an independent 13 year old as jake yeah. is that's not something that we saw in films in the 70s or that we've seen in films that go back and visit the period. So this was very forward-thinking by Hunter on his part. Yes, yes, he's great. You know, how do you prepare? Because this was, what, only your second movie? Yes. When you did it? How do you prepare for a role like this? Because a lot of the film, Jake is very quiet, but there's a lot of introspection. And it requires right. facial expression or lack thereof. And you are right. spot on in moments of quiet. You show... Uh, Jake shows no fear. You keep your... Fit. Yeah. You never show fear in this film. And I hate to say it, but if somebody was biting the head of a snake off, I think I'd be running the other way out of the cave.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, just that... Uh, there's really no way to as far as, like, preparation, you know, because it's such a different type of script, and it was my first lead, and I was so young. Um, It was an indie film, you know, so we had to make a lot of compromises with time management and locations and conditions and and stuff like that. Um, So I think I just went into it with a very open mind. Um, I knew she was a very strong character. Um, I really enjoyed getting to uh, sit down with Hunter and kind of talk about the script. Um, I enjoyed, you know, Hunter and Ted and I um, sat down one day and, and went over it and so i think it was just moments like that that were very helpful you know the people who surrounded me hunter because he was directing it but he also wrote it and he's been working so he's been working so hard on the film for years now and um you know the company i was in as far as actors you know especially ted they were very helpful in like my development and becoming jake and stuff like that um and so yeah i just had to i kind of had to go into it with an open mind and um uh, But really, my fellow actors is what really helps me because, you know, they're the, like, it's chemistry is a two-way street when it comes to acting, you know? It can't be carried one way, so I was really blessed to be with amazing actors that challenged me and brought out the best in me and my performance.
0: Because Ted Levine, I mean, a storied career, you know, his most famous role, obviously, in Silence of the Lambs, which I'm sure you had not seen before you did Dig Two Graves.
2: I had not. Because I, um, I was so young. Yes. Um, but here. But I ended up, when we were filming, I ended up watching it. Um, so, yeah, and I've seen it like a thousand times since. And it was such a thriller and so eerie. But Ted was phenomenal. He did such an amazing job of transforming into his character and they so insanely creepy and weird, but quirky. And he felt sorry for him. It was kind of, yeah, he could just a very interesting character he's so good at transforming into people and of course, he really
0: is then you have him playing a loving kind grandfather to you in dig two graves did how, did your right. mind wrap around that once you saw his performance in silence of the lambs
2: i mean i kind of was when i when i watched silence of the lambs i i look at all i look at all the actors I and mean, i look at it kind of from the standpoint of an actor i'm mm-hmm. like wow you know this, I see it. I mean, you get lost in a movie because of how great they are. But then it's like when you work with him and he's playing this, com- like, Sheriff Waterhouse. Yeah. He's a completely different, it's a completely different character. And you just look and you're like, wow, this actor is incredible. So I wasn't looking like, oh, wow, Buffalo Bill is really different. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> thinking anything like that. I really just appreciated him as an actor because he is totally phenomenal. He's you know, at what he does.
0: You have some very key scenes talking about your fellow actors Troy Ruptash who plays Wyeth, and that guy just exudes mm. creepy in *Dig Two Graves*. Yes. Did you get any kind of rehearsal time to develop any chemistry with him, or did you kind of lay back and just and just be more in the moment without rehearsal because of that surprise right. of their of Jake and Wyeth's meeting? You know, the
2: thing about Troy is that he's the sweetest person in the world and so I when we were you know when we were offset, I didn't look at him as wise and when we were filming I didn't look at him as Troy he is someone too that did such an amazing job of transforming himself because he may be one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life and um so I think I think going into it you know, there was some, you know, going over lines and stuff. You know, it just, everything really came out when we started filming. So, mm-hmm. um, as far as, like, behind the scenes, you know, I didn't keep my distance from anybody. Um, I've always had, like, trouble with that, you know, before scenes. People were like, okay, Samantha, you should, you know, this. there's a crying scene coming up or there's a stressful scene. Go off and... You know prepare and i'm like i'm gonna can i just stay here and like no other people need to prepare so i i'm kind of the annoying one that like doesn't get into character until we're saying like roll sound which i don't know if that's the best thing in the world um and i can come out of a very serious scene and i'll just be like i'll like right when you say cut i will completely snap out of it um so my mom gets on to me for that sometimes cause the best thing for other people in the room um So, behind the scenes, I just really enjoyed my relationships with people, Mm -hmm. and I think um, becoming friends with them made me feel more confident in, like, exploring our characters and stuff, and they, like, because it was easier. I felt more confident in making, like, certain decisions with my performance because I knew them so well. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of how that went for me.
0: I'm curious about the shoot, because, number one, you shot in the summer, you shot in the winter, you got underwater Mm -hmm. scenes... Yeah. But the winter yeah. shooting in the winter—that was one of the coldest winters in Illinois when you guys were shooting, and you were yeah. outside. I believe it. And yeah. How ch- physically was this challenging for you? Number one, because of all the things you had to do in character as Jake, but also the element—just the elements of Mother Nature.
2: Yes, it definitely—it definitely was a challenge. Um, and I think I handled it better then than I would now. I feel like now I'm older and I would be like, you know, I would complain about the weather or the hours a little bit more, but then I was like, it was my first lead and I was honestly so excited and I was so enthralled in just making the film. Um, and you know, we had great people taking care of us. So, you know, in all those scenes when the weather was like <laughs> actually 10 degrees and when the bus is coming, when the, you know, um... Fog is coming out of our mouth and what, whatever that is. Yeah, it's it's all real. So I had had you know warming pads all over my bodies, and I was drinking lots of tea and hot chocolate. And my mom was always on the side with a blanket and a big coat for me. And so I mean, it definitely looking back, it was it was very challenging. You know, weather um, hours because I you know I, I was I was the lead, I'm the lead, and so being that young filming, you know almost every day mm-hmm. for a day. It, it did. It was a little it was tiring, but um, it exposed me to a lot. I, I knew I really wanted to do it, um, and, you know, the commitment that I had then did not scare me away at all, which was good. I really enjoyed doing it, um, so nothing turned me away. It just made me more excited to work more. So I, it definitely was a challenge. Every project is in its own way, but I'm grateful for it. It was an amazing experience.
0: And of course, you jump from that and you go into Captain Fantastic, Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Okay, every 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 actor out there is going to want to know your secret, Samantha, because you work with <laughs> Ted Levine. Then you jump in and you work with Viggo Mortensen, and now you've ju- you just finished up. I know it's in post production now. Um, Aaron Sorkin's movie, Molly's
3: Game. Yes, thank you.
2: Yeah, I've I've honestly gotten. I have gotten really lucky, and I know that sounds silly to say I was all lucky, but it is. It's, uh, it's all kind of been like a domino effect, you know. I, I did take two braves, It was so much fun. You know, we went in the for an NBC sitcom. I got that. The show was canceled. I was completely distraught. I didn't know what to do. I get the saw for Captain Fantastic, and I was like... I guess I'll give it a shot. I love the story. I ended up doing that, which if the show wasn't cance- the TV show wasn't canceled, I would never have been able to do that. And because of that, a lot of other doors have opened for me and you know, I just got back from, you know, the Screen Actors Guild Awards like, you know, a couple of months ago, two two months ago or so. So it it has honestly been completely unreal, but it's been it's been truly amazing getting to know people and I have honestly been so proud of like the people that I've been able to work with and the quality of the stuff that I've done. Um, I feel really fortunate because everything I've done, I've been super, super proud of. Um, and I've never wanted to do anything that didn't feel right for me. So I'm so lucky that I've gotten to play the characters I've had. I've worked with the incredible directors and writers I have. Um, and yeah, and it's, I, I honestly have been really lucky. But working with the people that I have and doing what I've done has definitely helped me figure out what I want to do with my career. A, so,
0: you know, and, I'm, and you brought up that important word of quality. Because the, the, mm-hmm. the movies you've done, the shows, Sean Saves the World, and even your one-offs in some other TV series, the, it's mm-hmm. all quality. It's quality uh, programming. They're quality films and they're quality roles. Mm-hmm. What do you look for? And it's hard to maintain that high a bar when you're a working actor. So what do you look yes. for You know, when you're reading scripts? Does this go through your manager, your mom, you? Does it get whittled down? Right, it goes.
2: It, it you know originally everything is sent through my agent, my manager, and it comes to me, and I read the scripts. And you know, especially this, this time of year in the spring pilot season, you know there there's a lot of projects going on right now. And as I've worked a little bit more, I've gotten some auditions that have come through, and some I love, and some I don't. I feel like that's the same for everybody, but for me my whole life and everything I've done, it's always been quality over quantity. I don't, I could do five amazing movies in my life and never work again and I will feel so successful. Um, But if I did something that I felt, you know, didn't really benefit me as a person, didn't really benefit my career, didn't benefit the people that were watching it, I just don't feel drawn to it. So the characters that I've gotten to play have been very strong, um, intellectually capable people young women Mm -hmm. um and that i've been really lucky with that you know because uh the challenges and the focuses of all my characters have not really been your typical teenage girl um even molly and molly's game molly jake keeler and captain fantastic ellie and chaunce of the world their maturity levels are so much higher um than a lot of you know the average girls and I've, i've just gotten kind of lucky with that and the projects have been amazing too and i uh when i'm reading auditions and stuff I look for something that is really for me challenging or that I know an audience can watch and can get something out of it
3: mm-hmm. you know so
2: I don't mind auditioning for something where you know she's the popular girl at school or if she's if it's a bromance or something because some of those stories are really good and they really do mean a lot and they have great messages um so yeah I just want something that will benefit my career will benefit me as a person I've learned a lot from all the characters I've played and I want, when people watch anything I've done, I want them to get something out of it, whether it's from my character or from the story as a whole. Because, um, you know, and I also, I kind of live a double life. You know, I'm currently walking around downtown Tulsa and Oklahoma doing this interview, so I'm about to go to a college basketball game with my boyfriend. So I have a very, like, I have a very normal, normal life. I'm still in high school. I just got back from my senior spring break trip, um, and so I honestly, I, I love my life. I love where I'm from. I love so being able to go to school, but I also love the career that I'm building for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't choose one over the other. And so when I do decide to leave my home and leave my family and, you know, sacrifice time, I want it to be for something that's, that's just great. And that's worth it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really look for when I'm reading a script. I'm like, you know what, this is worth it. Um, so for me, that could be one film a year. That could be, you know, one TV show every other year, whatever it may be. Um, I would rather have, again, five amazing things on my resume than a hundred things that aren't too great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, have to, I have to ask you, having done dig two graves first, did that help prepare you for what was demanded of you in Captain Fantastic? Because that movie, it's very physical on all of your parts, but it's so beautiful and it is so original. Matt Ross just blew everybody away with what he did with that Mm -hmm. film. And I'm just wondering if going through, enduring the weather and things like that on Dig 2 Graves, did that kind of prepare you for the outdoorsy nature that you'd be facing with Captain Fantastic? Oh, for sure, for sure. And I
2: think, honestly... And, I mean, Captain Fantastic was another indie film. The budget was a little bit bigger, but it was, it was still a small indie film. Um, and so with films like that, you know, you kind of, you do have to compromise with, <laughs> with the elements and with time and stuff like that. So it definitely prepared me because in Captain Fantastic, I had a supporting role. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't Vigo. I wasn't the one that was there every single day. But I was oh, I was there We all the kids. We were all there for almost two and a half months. From the time we started preparing for the film to the time we actually ended filming. Um, so I think, I think it really did prepare me. I it, I knew kind of like looking back on Dick Two Graves and the, the acting choices I made, um, the advice I got from people, the things I learned. Um, but yeah, it, it really did help me, and Cat's fantastic. And I and it's funny because I went from Dick Two Graves to um, Sean Saves the World. And when I was doing Sean Saves the World, you know. Some of the producers were like, You're still in you're still in movie mode <laughs> and to be in, in sitcom mode on television on NBC. And so I kind of learned how to switch that on and off mm-hmm. and it was fun going back to Captain Fantastic because I that's where I feel really natural. Um, I'm told that I like I sometimes I underdo things a lot. I'm like too natural. <laughs> um I need to like act more <laughs> act more. Um but no, I, re- I really did enjoy Captain Fantastic. So physical, I was well prepared. I was um, well prepared. I was excited because I knew kind of how to handle the pressure a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit older, um, a little bit more mature from fourteen to fourteen to fifteen. I guess yeah, it wasn't that too far apart. Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Um, so yeah, it, de- it definitely did. It definitely helped.
0: So now I know. So that you can get back to your to your boyfriend and the basketball game. Just one more, <laughs> just one more question. I want to ask you, but what is the greatest? What is the gift that acting gives you right now?
2: Wow! Oh my God, I love that question. Thank you for asking a question like that. The greatest gift. Mm-hmm. It it has honestly made me. It acting has made me a better person. Um, and it in a way because I've gotten to play some amazing people and I've gotten to work with so many amazing people. Um, and I think the industry. Has broadened my horizons in in a way that I like would not have happened at least for years um, where I live and just you know kind of the the normalcy of of my daily life. I've traveled to so many different places. I met so many different people. Um, I've overcome a lot of fears. I think I'm really good at talking to people now. I'm okay with public speaking. Um, I'm still getting over the fear of talking about myself a lot because <laughs> not my favorite but it has, I feel like it has made me a better person. You know, Captain Fantastic made me want to be so much smarter than I was before. So because of that, I have watched so many, many more documentaries and I've read so much more. I care so much more about what's going on in the world, about my own physical health and my mental health. Um, and I think that's rubbed off on people in my family and my friends. Um, even in like big two graves, I've learned a lot about, you know, you know, this natural series of events and, you know, you can't change the past. So there's no reason to try to get at people for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I a lot, of, like a lot of the films I've done, they've really struck me at my core. Um, and it has made me a better person. I think now I'm more accepting of people than I ever have been before. Um, in every single way, I'm so much more open to diversity. And you know, being in Oklahoma, you know, it's a pretty, you know, conservative, traditional area to live in. So i I'm a lot different than some of the people that I'm surrounded by. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like I, my eyes have been opened a lot wider than they would have for me at such a young age. So that's what I've gotten out of it, and um, I really hope that people who watch anything I've done, you know, can gain something, too.
0: Well, trust me, you're going to be around for a quite a long while, Sam. You, you have wow. talent that it, it's an innate talent that you have. You can tell on screen it's, it's not forced. And I can't wait to see Molly's game when that comes out. Thank you. And I hope I'm going to I hope I get a chance to talk to you then about that film. I
2: would love to. This has been one of my favorite interviews. Oh, I'm glad.
0: It's definitely been one of my highlights this week. Let me tell you, Sam, I've been looking forward to this. So, Good. Thank I'm thank so you. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Now go back to your boyfriend. Go enjoy the basketball game. <laughs> I will.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay and that was Samantha Eisler the star opposite Ted Levine in Dig Two Graves and i'm so thrilled because after after getting a great lead in by his leading lady i now have Hunter Adams joining behind the lens hello hunter
4: debbie nobody told me that i would be following Samantha
0: Eisler. Oh, well.
4: A tough, a tough act to follow.
0: And she raved, because we had to pre, she and I pre-recorded her interview Friday because she's in school this morning.
4: Oh.
0: Um, and no, we do not miss school for radio shows. Education is, is too important. Um, but <laughs> she raved the whole interview, and it'll be up later today on my website and then on iTunes tomorrow. Um, but she ra she loved working with you and the experience of Dig Two Graves and she credits the work that she did for you with what helped her on you know Matt Ross's Captain Fantastic shoot.
4: Well she is of course required to say that because of the contract. But, um, <laughs> well sure she still means it I,
0: I think she definitely means it. But I've g i have I have to say, number one, why this has been sitting around, you know for a while until it could come out. I don't know because Dig Two Graves is such a fine film.
4: Uh well thanks. It, it is mean,
0: it's, it's intriguing. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, where where did I got to ask because this story is so unique and the way you blend generations with a whole the idea of superstition, uh you know, backward superstition and you bring it all together. It's it's just fabulous. Where where did this come from, Hunter?
4: Well, it was a process. It started um, as a pretty simple conceit, a young kid wrestling with a difficult choice after he loses his brother. And it evolved from there. I lost my mom around the time that I was writing this, so I was dealing with a lot of the emotions of grief that the character goes through. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I wrote it over the course of about a year and gradually it just started to take on a life of its own and the three moonshine characters which were initially drawn in the tradition of Shakespeare's uh, Witches and
3: Mm, um,
4: They I eventually wanted to give them more concrete impetus for um, messing with this kid. And so I started to build the backstory and then it became also this meditation on the sins of the past, threatening the future, mm-hmm. threatening the present, and, and that's where Ted Levine's character, Sheriff Waterhouse, um, his character became a more prominent component to the to the film.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well,
0: and I have to say because you touch on all these great themes: generational violence, grief, loss, good, evil, and it really makes you know. It, after the film's over, you're still thinking about what you've just seen and what the characters endured and how they handled things.
4: Um, yeah, well, I think a lot of it also has to do with there's, there's a lot of room for audience interpretation and for audiences to, to think about these themes. You know, I try not to pound them down people's throats um, but so I think that part of the subtlety is, is what allows it to linger in, in the imagination after, mm-hmm. the, after the film is over.
0: Now, were you always intending to direct this? Yes. So then, because this is also, it's it's very, me- as you said, very meditative, but it, there are long stretches of, of silence, of quiet. And, you know, this is an instance where silence does speak volumes. So, I'm wondering, were you, you know, creating your visuals as you were writing this? Were you figuring out how you would approach this, your visual palette?
4: Yeah. Um, I, I wrote the screenplay, and then I worked with a, with a friend of mine who's a storyboard artist. And in that process, I was able to pull out a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Because when I, when I saw the film laid out visually, I realized, well, oh, I don't need that line. He doesn't have to say that. So the, the film became uh, just less dialog
3: mm-hmm. and
4: relied more on, on the visuals. So that was a very important um, part of the process.
0: Well, another very important part of this process, too, is your location. Because so much of the mythology and the history that you've incorporated is that not germane to this specific area of Southern Illinois?
4: Yeah, Southern Illinois, um, I, I didn't write the, the screenplay initially with Southern Illinois in mind. I had written it with uh, Wisconsin as the backdrop. That's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. But when we decided to shoot there, I moved down and, and camped out for like four or five months in southern Illinois, which they call Little Egypt, by the way. Everything's Egyptian-themed down there. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a strange place. It's beautiful. Um, but I started to incorporate a lot of the, the local color and, and folklore and history, the dark history that, mm-hmm. that permeates that part of the country, especially in the, the 1940s. Um, so some of that stuff did infiltrate the screenplay after uh, as I was rewriting it. When I was spending time down
3: there. Mm-hmm. Then,
0: how do you, because you are melding the 1970s with the 1940s, and the 1940s is so visually specific. Um, no matter where you go in the world, that time period is, you can look at any photo and you'll know it was from that era. And I mm-hmm. see that, and you, along with your cinematographer, Eric Madison, you also change up your palette, you bring in the more golden umbers, um, slight sepia notes, under, underpinnings mm-hmm. to those, you know, how did you go about developing all of that so you have the contrast between the present and the past, but also make it cohesive so it does feel like it's the same film
4: Yeah, well we spent a lot of time designing the transition between the two time periods um, a lot of the effects that we did them in camera and it, they were very wow. time consuming, um, but I think ultimately it was worth it because it feels like the two time periods are are seamless. that there's you know the time is slipping between the two eras,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and, and I wanted that theme to be visualized. Um, so <clears throat> that was it was something that yeah we were we paid great attention to. Um, I didn't want it to be too obvious. Mm-hmm. when we were shifting time periods but i did want there to be a distinction so like you like you mentioned we did push the color palette towards the orange end of the spectrum in the 1940s and
3: mm-hmm.
4: more towards the blue end in the 1970s mm-hmm.
0: yeah and with your 1970s that the light in southern illinois it's a very specific kind of light especially in the winter winter yeah. winter <laughs> light is always different no matter where you go, did, mm-hmm. did you incorporate that into knowingly incorporate it into the visual palette? Because I know you shot winter, you shot summer, then the bane of every director's existence, you went underwater, <laughs> you threw in fire, <laughs> and you threw in snakes. And then
4: yeah, we, broke, we broke every golden rule of low budget filmmaking.
0: <laughs> what were you thinking, Hunter?
4: <laughs> it was, uh, ignorance is bliss.
0: Yeah. Were you cognizant, though, as you as you know, you and Eric were working together on the visual tonal bandwidth, you know, incorporating, you know, that winter light in those in those cold scenes and also the coldest winter on record up to that point in Illinois, I might add. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, because it's beautiful and you get this great. I don't know what what lenses Eric used, but you've got great focal depth that really brings mm-hmm. out the, the dried-up, the winter branches against that grayish light of the sky. And it just mm-hmm. it's very haunting, and it's beautiful.
4: Yeah, yeah haunting was one of the uh, styles we were trying to achieve, and, and melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the oppression that winter brings. Um, the sparseness, the bleakness, all of these things. Were elements that we were trying to capture visually Mm -hmm. uh, the the deterioration of the family, mimicked by the deterioration of the town,
3: Mm -hmm.
4: by the winter landscape. Um, And we did we shot a lot of things wide, Mm -hmm. a lot of close-ups or long lenses, and that was to really feel the impact of the landscape,
3: Mm
4: -hmm. the environment, and and the uh, extreme temperature
0: and of course your summer scenes at the quarry where which is where the film opens and things kick into motion with the sunshine it's absolutely beautiful and similarly you bring in the use of fire in multiple places notably Mm -hmm. with your moonshiners um, and another part that we won't divulge to people because i want them to be surprised but but you know that whole you know the fire the golden umbers there it ties in with the idea of summer when life is good and there's bringing Jake under under their spell plus it also harkens back to the legacy from the 1940s that is now coming coming forward into the 70s your metaphoric tie-in is just fabulous well
4: thanks yeah I don't it wasn't necessarily conscious I don't think but it just it developed, Unconsciously, mm-hmm. these elements just kept recurring, and then, especially in the storyboard process, I think it became more clear when I started to actually see it laid out visually. Mm-hmm.
3: But, now,
4: yeah, it had a, a sort of a biblical feel
0: you know ultimately. very much so. I have what led you to having a snake snake's plural as part of uh, <laughs> uh, a part of this storytelling?
4: Well, interestingly, it was originally a crow. Um, but the crows turned out to be too expensive, and um, we couldn't. I, I tried to hire someone in Southern Illinois to catch a crow, and they failed. But the guy said, "I I can't get you a crow, but I do have a snake." And he had a, a <laughs> he had a pet rattlesnake. Oh God! That <clears throat> that the, uh, the the venom had been removed from the fangs. And he used it for educational purposes. He was like a biology teacher down there. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, sounded cool. And I met the snake, and it was a lovely snake, very charming. And um, we asked the snake handler, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? Because there's, we have actors that will be holding the snake. And he said, well, I guess the snake could bite someone in the eye.
0: Oh, that's what you uh, want to hear. That's what the insurance company <laughs> wants to hear.
4: Well, we said, well, you know what? We can live with that. <laughs> so, uh, so we went with the snake. <laughs> but then I started to research um, snake handlers, and there had been a, a presence of snake handlers, which is a denomination of uh, pentecostals. that originated, I think, mostly in um, Appalachia,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and they w- they would uh, drink battery acid and. Dance and go into trances and dance around with these venomous snakes, and um, I guess as a sign that they were um, protected by God, mm-hmm. you know, they, were, they were not going to be bit. So some of that also was infused into the like the snake ritual ceremonies, the, the voodoo
3: mm-hmm.
4: ceremonies that they had.
0: You know, that's that's something I have to commend you on. With Dig Two Graves, is you didn't just sit down and write this. You actually, you did research to, you know, buttress and enhance and change your script and your storytelling, which for a film like this, you would think, most will think that a a writer, director, it's just, no, you sit down, you write the story. But you have done research to infuse factual elements of the time and the region.
4: Absolutely. I mean, that's where a lot of the, the best ideas can come from you just rip off real life it's hard it's hard to think up um you know original ideas
3: Mm -hmm. everything's
4: kind of been done so yeah you have to kind of take take from different sources that you can and and try to spin it in a, a unique and creative way
0: well you know at the core and at the heart of dig two graves is of course your casting and none is more engaging more exudes more warmth and love than Ted Levine and Samantha Eisler as grandfather and granddaughter that is the two of them on screen together. It's like magic.
4: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. They were really great. We, the film, we, we, we shot a lot more of the script than made it into the final cut.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And, um, So we explored more of the town and the family and the sheriff and the deputy's relationship. But ultimately, I was so moved by the relationship between the grandfather and the granddaughter Mm
3: -hmm.
4: that I just didn't want to leave them. So a lot of those other scenes we just cut out because it was taking us away from from those moments. And I just kept wanting to get back to them. Mm -hmm. So I think that was... You know, it just showed how impactful that relationship
0: was. Well, and, and you know, you yourself as the filmmaker, you just wanted to get back to them as I'm watching the film. Even though I am engaged at every step of the way, it's just something about when the two of them are on screen together that gives, mm-hmm. it just, it adds just something special
4: yeah. to, to what's yeah.
0: unfolding.
4: I, I think it's, it was like, to me it was cool because Ted's, um, Portrayal—it's it's so gruff, and he's—he's just—he's—he's he's a rough and tumble kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But when you see him with his granddaughter, he's—he's he's so gentle and sweet and loving. I thought it was a really um, a great contrast.
0: You know what? To that character. What was your casting process like for this film, Samantha? Virtual unknown Ted, who a very storied career.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm, and then of course you bring in Troy Ruptash as our head Moonshiner Wyeth, uh, who is one of the creepiest one of the creepiest things I've seen on screen in a while.
4: Well, he is Canadian.
0: Oh well, you know, <laughs>
4: yeah, naturally creepy.
0: <laughs> yeah,
4: how we, um, yeah it was we we looked um, for probably six months or more for Jake. We cast our net as wide as possible,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and we just had people uh, submitting from all over the country. And interestingly, uh, originally in the story, it was a young boy. And when we started the casting process, we just realized that the, um, the girls were, were so much better than the boys, so I, sw- I swapped the gender. And that's why her name is Jake, So I was too lazy to change the name.
0: Well, that works. Um, Jacqueline, Jackie, yeah. Jake. Yeah. yeah, we
4: just threw, we said Oh, it's short for Jacqueline. That works,
0: you know. Somewhere, a tomboy, somewhere. In, anyway, you know, somewhere in time, I'm sure Jacqueline Kennedy was called Jake by somebody. So <laughs> yeah,
4: exactly. So we yeah, we just looked and looked and then uh, Samantha submitted herself. Uh, she was living in Tulsa, and she she was just incredible from the, the very first audition. Mm-hmm. So we got really lucky, <clears throat> and then um, a lot of the cast we pulled from Chicago, the theater and television scene there, and just bust everybody down to Southern Illinois.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
4: um, Troy was somebody that the casting director um, sent over to us. He was living in L.A. Um, and he, was, he had a really interesting take on the material. A lot of the people that were auditioning for that role just played Wyatt creepy. They tried to be as, you know, as scary as possible. And he was seductive. Yeah. And I, and that was, like a I think, a really important component to that character because he is he's courting her in a way. I mean, he's convincing her to do this terrible thing. And so there has to be – she has to trust him and she has to, you know, go along with this. And if he's just scary, it wouldn't work, you know.
0: No, but, but he's so – and his voice, his, his cadence – he speaks so softly yeah. when he speaks to her right. as well.
4: Yep, exactly. You and know. then uh, Ted was, um, was somebody who was on, a, on our short list of great actors who was the right age that we could age up and age down for both time periods. Mm-hmm. That was important. Um, we had actually cast someone else because uh, a distributor that we were speaking with wanted this other actor because he would get us more money I think uh in in foreign sales Mm -hmm. and uh we were all set to go and he backed out about a week before we started shooting and so we were kind of scrambling we just sent Ted the script and said you got 24 hours to say yes or no and the next day he called me up and uh I think a few hours after that he was on a plane to southern Illinois
0: Wow! Now you know it's
4: really hard. It's hard. to imagine anybody else playing that part.
0: Oh, having seen him, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. But now, what does but that? Was, what does that do to you as you know a young director? You know, this is what uh, what number feature is this of yours?
4: This is just
0: this is your second feature. So you know what? And you don't have a big studio. You don't have a big a ton of money behind you. So you're all set with everybody, and then all of a sudden your your lead pulls out. Does that send yeah, you into, you know, apoplexy or, you know, how do you deal create, with that in a sane level as a director?
4: I, I channeled it into my beard and it turned gray. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much, yeah. You can't, I mean, it's, it's tough because you have to at least appear on the surface um, that you've, you've got control of the ship um, because people are counting on you. But, in my mind, I knew if we didn't get, if Ted didn't say yes, I mean, the movie was basically over. Mm-hmm. You know, that we were going to send every we had, we we're going to send everybody home. You know, and and that would be the end of the movie. So these things are very precarious. But you have to, you have to project, you know, a sense of calmness and confidence throughout <laughs> the entire process, so that people will, uh, you know, not abandon shit. <laughs> Hence the gray
0: beard. Hence the gray beard. And, and I'm sitting here, and, of course, you know, Nick, who answered the phone, this is the big boss who owns Adrenaline Radio. So we have Nick working the board here today, and he has a very long gray beard. And now that you've told this story, I'm sure he's going to blame everybody that that's why he has a gray beard now. So <laughs> you have created a monster here, Hunter. you created a monster. You know, I, ha- I have to ask you about the music. The music is so perfect it is it's underscored it is not overpowering it doesn't lead you anywhere it follows the emotion of the story
3: Mm-hmm.
0: you know and I know yeah, you that had, was, you had three composers were three three guys working on the music
4: We did yeah and that was that was an interesting process from the get-go I, I wanted the music to feel uh, like it was in, embedded in in the landscape. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. want something, like you said, to be leading the emotion, um, but rather underscoring mm-hmm. the emotion. And we, I worked with um, some friends of mine who were in a band called Man Man. His name was Ryan Katner. And um, he... And uh, his partner, Joe Plummer, they basically just recorded. They spent like two weeks in the studio just recording all of these elements for me. And then the third composer, Brian Deming, he took a lot of those stems that they had recorded and then he added to them and twisted them and and created the final product.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful.
4: Collaboration between the three of them.
0: It's beautiful, and it works so well in conjunction with your sound mix. And kudos to your sound guys, because you use the sounds of nature. You know, the Mm -hmm. crow flying and cawing, we hear wind, we hear branches crackling under feet. You really immerse us and embed us in Mm -hmm. that region, in that world. And those are little things that, you know, so many directors would overlook at this stage of their career but mm-hmm. you paid such close attention to them and it just adds another whole layer to this portrait.
4: Yeah, well, I'm a huge proponent of sound design. I, I take it as seriously as the visual design. So just like doing storyboards and, and working out the visuals, both with the cinematographer, I did the same thing with the, the sound team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people forget how visceral the sound mix is, how important it is on levels that most people watching aren't going to be aware of. Um, so, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time and a lot of effort um, on, on the sound design of the film, um, the way that sound bleeds between the periods, yeah. helps with the transitions, um, the use of silence yeah. can be the most powerful component of, of the sound mix.
0: I mean, of even even things. right down to, you know, the truck engines of 1940. Mm-hmm. The rattle of the engine; those make very distinct sounds. So you know,
4: yeah, I was pretty obsessed about that kind of stuff. Well, those little sound details.
0: Trust me, it paid off in spades, Hunter. So now the <laughs> film is finally; we're finally. Everybody's going to get to see it this Friday. How exciting is that, that for you? Sucks.
4: uh it's been such a long process that I'm not sure excitement. I, I sort of burnt out on excitement, <laughs> but I am relieved to finally toss it out there for, for everybody to, uh, check out, Yeah, you
0: know, and do you have anything next on your plate or are you just going to sit back and take it all in that this, that dig two graves is finally out there in the universe?
4: Uh, no, uh, rest for the, for the weary. Um, got three projects that I'm, uh, developing at the moment. So hopefully get something off the ground very soon.
0: Uh well Hunter, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been this has been wonderful. First, you know, Samantha and then you. And I hope that when you get your other projects going, you will come back on the show.
4: I'd love to. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you, Hunter, so much. And for everybody, dig two graves in theaters and available all over the place this Friday. Thanks, Hunter. Deb. And that's all the time we have today. So Until next week, which right now could be a surprise, um, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs)